And so let's go ahead and turn our attention to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to be in this for a little while. We're going to take a little lengthy journey through the letters of John that may last us a couple to three months. Uh, John is maybe a guy that you have heard if you have any study in the scriptures behind you. John is kind of one of the big three disciples, James, James, John, and, and Peter. He's the son of a guy named Zebedee, and he's a prolific author. I would say John probably writes the best beginning of any author in scripture outside of Genesis 1. Uh, But John is uh, prolific, and you know his name because there's a gospel named John. John has his own gospel. Gospel is a word that's confusing in the world of Christianity. We say preach the gospel at all times, and gospel just simply means good news. And that good news is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in our New Testaments, we have four books that are about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we call those gospels. So we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, that we just went through 20 weeks in Mark. Then we have Luke and John. Then the rest of your New Testament is a church history book. You've got some letters to various churches and to people. And then you've got a prophetic book at the end called Revelation, which John wrote. And so John has wrote these letters. He's wrote the gospel. I had somebody come to me a while ago and say, what's the difference between John and one John? Like, what's the difference between this John that's in the beginning of my New Testament and these three things at the end of my New Testament, one, two, and three, John. And I thought that was a really good question. Uh, John is great because in his writings, he always declares the purpose of his book. He always declares the purpose of his book. And so in the gospel of John, in chapter 20, John writes this as the reason that he writes his gospel. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John, in writing his gospel, he writes it that you would believe and have eternal life, that by hearing the word of God, hearing about Jesus, you would believe and have salvation. So this is a wonderful tool that we have that John identifies the purpose of his books, and he does the same thing in his letters uh, to the churches. In 1 John chapter 5, we see the purpose of John, specifically writing the first letter, John 1, 1 John, and he writes this in chapter 5, and you read this, it says, I write these things to you who believe in that the name, in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. And so John's gospel is about you hearing about Jesus, that you might have belief in him, which brings eternal life and salvation. But John's letters are about those of you who are believers knowing that you actually have it. So in layman terms, how do you actually know if you're a Christian? That is why he's writing this letters. Because look, it's completely possible to be a Christian and have doubts. And doubts don't infer disbelief. I would just say this, if you have doubts in your walk with Christ, just don't sit on those things. Like That has the, the propensity of robbing you of some of the freedom and the flourishing that we have in Christ. Expose those things to God. Bring them to other people so we can kind of work through those things together. And so we have Christians who have doubts, and that doesn't infer disbelief, but we also have people who profess Christ that are liars. And there are lots of reasons that people would confess Christ and be liar, not truthful in those things. Uh, maybe they do it because there's acceptance Maybe they found some people that like them and they like being around them, or maybe it's for their advantage that being a part of a body or being a part of a church brings them some advantage, or even it could be by association, that maybe mommy and daddy were a Christian and we went to church and that's kind of what we do and we just keep doing those things. 
And so there's lots of reasons why one would be professing a Christian but not really meaning those things. And so John has one purpose in all of this, right? That Christians would know that they have eternal lives. And so he's going to take us into two different avenues that's going to try to bring us there. Uh, number one is that professing Christians might test themselves and see the genuineness of their faith. That he wants to walk us through this, that we would test ourselves and see the genuineness of our faith by some marks that we see as of true Christians. This kind of this Philippians 2.12 kind of thought that we are to work out our salvation, that faith's not just a, a one-time decision that we have and then we're good, but faith is something that we work and grow in. Right? So he wants to bring us there. And then the second place that he's going to drive us is that true believers would be assured of their right standing with God. Essentially, what makes you right in front of God? How do you know if you're right in front of God? And so those are two avenues that he's going to drive us through towards the purpose of knowing that we're a Christian. And then he's going to ground all of those things in three anchors of truth that serve as, as a guide for us to know that we believe rightly. And so those three anchors are this, right belief in Jesus, right obedience to God's commands, and right love for one another. Right belief in Jesus, right obedience to God's commands, and right love for one another. And John will contend that if you get these things right, if you believe rightly in these things, then you have some assurances of salvation, of eternal life, that you would know that I am a Christian. And honestly, that question that, Steve, how do I know that I'm a Christian is, is a question that I get often. How do I know that I'm a Christian? So for the next few weeks and months, we're going to really dig into this to really expose our hearts, kind of bring some questions to ourselves, and, and, and be pushed by the Word of God into some realities. And so this week, we're going we're gonna to aim square on at right belief in Jesus. Uh, we're going to tackle that in some ways. John, in his letter, is taking the task a group of people who are causing confusion within the church in Asia Minor. John writes this between 85 and 90 AD, and he's attacking a group of people that are going around saying that Jesus never existed in body, that Jesus was just spirit and only. That, and, and that group of people are called Gnostics. Uh, it's Gnosticism is what it's called. And, and at what's central to Gnosticism is a belief that everything that is of flesh, or everything that is physical and matters, like matter that you learned in science class, everything that's matter, physical bodies, earth, everything in this that we can see and touch is evil. And everything spiritual is good. Now, as a Christian, there are some truths into those things. We are, like we, we talk about, we're citizens of heavens first, right? That's our true identity. But there's some distortions that they're going to make. They believe that they obtain this ability to see these separate worlds, spiritual and matter, this evil world, by special knowledge. That knowledge that isn't something that you could learn or earn, but only something that was given to them as a gift. And that's such an arrogant statement. <laughs> like, that I got this knowledge and you can never possess it. Like, I've literally had people that said I had a revelation from God and it was for me and me alone that contradicted the word of God. And how do you, what do you say? It's such an arrogant statement. Look, God did not come in flesh to make it difficult for you to know who he is. He doesn't have special knowledge that's only available to a certain group of people. That's not why he came in the flesh. And so if you ever hear somebody say, well, I've got special knowledge from God that you don't, like run from that. You don't, don't hang out with that. There's some dangerous places that you're going to get into in that. 
And so John just is frustrated with this group, and this group comes around uh, Christianity because Christianity fills in some of the gaps in their thinking. Uh, Christianity has some beautiful thoughts about spirit-filled living, and, and they began to pick it up and, and say that God never came in flesh, that because matter is so evil, a holy God could never exist in a material world. And so they began to claim that Jesus was a lesser God. He wasn't a holy God because a holy God could never interact with the world. And they're bringing all sorts of confusion into this. And listen, John's going to have none of it. John is going to have none of it. He's going to take in the cast because at the core of the Christian belief is that Jesus was God in flesh, fully human, fully God. And listen, it had to be that way. It had to be that way for good reasons that we'll talk about today. And so let's just jump into 1 John today. We're going to read the first four verses in the first chapter, and we can read that together in our scripture journals. It'll be on the screen as well if you don't have one. It says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you, to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write these things so that our joy might be complete. Now, very eloquently and compellingly, John writes that from the beginning, and he's not saying from the beginning of this movement that people call Christianity, or from the movement of the beginning of Judaism, from the very beginning, before Genesis 1, Jesus existed. From the beginning, Jesus the Son existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the triune God of the universe, in the Godhead, in perfect unity and com complete, or contentment with each other, and in that love and contentment, they poured themselves out onto the, the canvas of the cosmos, creating everything that we know he's always existed. And that life that has always existed, that is, was made manifest in the flesh, and we saw it. I saw it, John says. I touched him. I gazed upon his flesh. The life was made manifest in the flesh, and we can testify to it and proclaim it to you that you might have hope and fellowship with us. I saw him, John said. When I was reading this text, uh, uh, the vice presidential debate in 1988 came into my head, and that's so ADD of me. That's just the, my brain. But there was this debate in 1998 between a guy named Lloyd Benson and our very own Hoosier, Dan Quell. And in that debate, there was this, like, this mega burn that's kind of uh, the kind of highlight of all debate burns that happened within that debate. So Quell was a young guy, and he was getting a lot of questions about his inexperience and his youth. And he began to have this stump speech where he was saying, well, John F. Kennedy, Jack Kennedy, has less experience than I do, and he became president. Now, Benson was 30, 67 years old. He had worked and served. He was a friend of Jack Kennedy. And he learned that Quayle was doing this, and he was appalled. And so they get into this debate, and sure enough, he's asked a question about his inexperience. Maybe you guys remember this, who were around in 1988. He gets asked this question, and he brings up this whole line about John Kennedy, about Jack Kennedy. And Benson turns to him after his time is over, and he said this, Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. 
Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. And the crowd erupts at this, oh, and they applaud, and, and Quayle comes back, and he's offended by it. And then Benson says this, you are the one who's making the comparison, Senator. Senator. I am the one that knew him well. And this is exactly what John is doing in his letter. He's compelling to the church the very same thing. Look, I knew him. I lived with him. I touched him. My eyes gazed upon his body. My life is lived in light of what he's done for me. Don't listen to these fools that have never heard or seen or touched him. He was here. It happened. I saw him in flesh. Because listen, Christianity stands and falls on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It succeeds or fails on whether or not God indeed came in flesh in the person that we know as Jesus Christ, that that actually happened in space and time, that Christ came in the flesh to deal with our sin because Christ and God had to die in the flesh to redeem those in the flesh of sin. He came into flesh so that you may know God and not just know about some cosmic deity in the clouds. He came so that you could see for yourself a very example of what it means to live for God in the flesh by the example of Jesus. And so this Gnostic movement in this first century is troublesome to to Paul and it, it really becomes an issue. People began to go off and search for deeper truths, uh, deeper special knowledge and experiences. Many people began to believe that spirituality was all that matters, that material things were evil and they were unimportant because they were passing away. And look, element of truth in that. We, as a physical being, are passing away, but they distort this because they reason it didn't matter what you did in the flesh. It didn't matter if you, in your physical bodies, uh, were promiscuous or were drunken or gluttons. These things would never affect the person's soul because we're spiritual beings. And so there was no harm in doing them. Now, you don't hear this term Gnosticism today. You're not going to turn on your news channels and you're not going to hear Gnosticism right off. You're not going to read it much But this idea is still present within our church, this sort of splitting ourselves from the spirit and our physical realities still finds its way into the church. We increasingly have become, in this culture, uncomfortable with the word Christians. It's almost offensive that I'm a a Christian. What we would rather say is that I'm a spiritual person, that Christ following has this negative connotation, that I'd rather be a spirit-filled person. And so this is a trendy word that we see in our culture, and what we're trying to do, all that movement is trying to do is separate the spirit from the flesh, that you can think that you can live in two realities and check some boxes in the spiritual world and think that you're going to get heaven and live however you want in the world without really having the, the cognition that God judges you on the totality of your flesh and your spirit. And so today, this movement in Christianity is trying to shed some of the trappings of mainstream baby boomer Christianity, uh, Christianity that's kind of boiled down to bumper stickers and into mega churches and, in, and just like owning all the right-wing politics that we can own. They are wanting a more gritty, relevant, justice-oriented faith. Now listen, I'm not going to condemn all of those things. 
Because there are some right things in those things. There is an exposure on some hypocrisy and some shallowness of some in previous generations. Generations of people who made it about building bigger houses and bigger churches, all while neglecting the poor and making the gospel into a commodity that was sold much like Tupperware. Some of those things are okay, but there's some very, very dangerous things in what's happening. Because this new kind of movement in Christianity seems to think as long as you're doing social justice, as long as you're doing something right by the Lord in his word, if you're moving to be unplugged from the grid and you have authentic, spirit-filled worship, as long as you're doing that and in the spiritual world, to some regard, you have goodness, you have right standing. And all that is is simply a shedding of the authority and the power and the divinity of Christ and elevating the lifestyle of Christ and saying, I just want to do that. Without recognizing his authority and his divinity. And that's wicked. That's not Christ following. And so what John is coming here to say is that, look, Jesus came this way. It happened. I was there. I think John would have a problem with all of that. I think John would have a problem with a lot of us. Uh, But John would have a problem with that. We can't separate spiritual from the material, nor can we separate belief from behavior. They go hand in hand. And so John is going to compel to us the importance of understanding Jesus rightly, that he existed, he was God, manifest in flesh, and he was here on earth, and they saw him. And honestly, in our 20th century context, uh, we face Uh, This constantly, we face uh, confusion, distortion, delusions, outright denial of the Jesus that's revealed in the Bible. And look, we can be encouraged because this is nothing new to the church. John writes this letter because he's dealing with the very same thing. He wants to set it straight. And so he writes this letter for us to absolutely get the question of who Jesus is right because it's so foundational. We believe that Christianity is true, not because we think it's true. We don't say Christianity is true because it's true for us and not for them, or that Christianity is true for those who believe. No, we say that Christianity is true whether you believe it or not. That it's true regardless of personal faith. It's a public matter of truth. If you were there, you would have seen Jesus living, that Jesus actually died on the cross, that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. Had you been on the mountainside when Jesus was teaching, you would have partaken in the same fish and loaves that Jesus blessed and multiplied from some little boy's lunch. You could have been next to the Sea of Galilee and watched Jesus walk on water and gotten wet from the sea. You could have been in the upper room with Thomas after the resurrection of Jesus and literally watched Thomas touch the hands of Jesus with wounds and put his hands in the side. You could have done the same thing. When we try in the Christian world to try to get ourselves away from some of the hard truths in Christianity, things that are outside our physical limitations, our understandings about outside the law of science, when we try to to distance ourselves from those things, we're setting ourselves up on a slippery slope. Look, what isn't of God that's not hard for us to understand? And when we begin to pick and choose what we believe in the Bible, it just takes us to a place that leads us to agnosticism and shallowness in faith. 
These are historical events that happened. Not matters of personal faith, they're matters of public truth. And you and I, especially in this generation, in this cultural movement, have a responsibility and a task, a calling even, to articulate and defend the truths when we're called upon. Because what John says about Jesus is that he existed in a certain manner, he had a certain mission, he had a certain way. You can't have it your way, like Burger King. I don't even know if that's the phrase at Burger King anymore. You can't have it your way. He came this way, and it's foundational. And so C.S. Lewis, he was a professor at Cambridge. He likes a lot of books that you may already know. He was once an agnostic. Uh, he was the first to con- convey this idea uh, that Jesus was one of three things. Because, look, nobody is really that of any intelligence doubting the existence of Jesus. Like, historically, th- there's just so much evidence that he walked this earth. And so, Lewis would say you have really three things that you can put Jesus into. You can either say that he's a liar, you can say he's a madman or a lunatic, or you can call him Lord. And he was the first to kind of coin these three words. Maybe you've read, read in a book about you know, Jesus being a liar, lunatic, or a Lord. There's some scholars who came along, some commentary uh, people who have added this term legend. That some people believe that Jesus was just a good moral teaching and have elevated into the him into the status of just a legend, that we should live like that. And so that's what we want to examine for our time here. What are the claims that Jesus makes? Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Was he just a legend? Or was he actually Lord? And so let's just, let's make no mistake, like Jesus claimed to be God. Like he never outright said the words, I am God in scripture, but he inferred it at almost every turn. Like just in the Gospel of John alone, he says, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham existed, I was. The Jewish hierarchy killed him because they believed that he was claiming to be God. His disciples, his believers, those who followed him, denoted in their words about Jesus the belief that he was God. Thomas, when he sees Jesus in John 20, when he sees him, He says, my Lord and my God, all the letters from the saints, all the letters from the apostles elevate Jesus as God. He's absolutely making claims to be God. And so his claims are either true or they're false. They're either true or they're false. And that's something that we have to give serious consideration. You know, Jesus asked this question to his disciples in Matthew 16, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And I would argue that's the most important question that all of humanity needs to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Every major religion of the world has had to do something with Jesus. They have to answer who Jesus is. Look, I don't have to answer who Buddha is. Everybody's got to do something with Jesus. And everyone in here has to do something with Jesus. He's something that we have to consider. It's the most important question in our life. And so there are several alternatives to who Jesus could be. First, let's just suppose that if he claimed to be God, he was false in that, that he was lying. If then he was lying, if he was false, then there are two kind of alternatives that we need to discover. A, he was a liar. Was Jesus a liar? Let's consider the evidence in that. If and when Jesus made his claims and he knew that he was not God, 
If he knew that, then he was lying and deliberately deceiving a massive amount of people. But not only that, if he's lying, like he's a hypocrite. Because his morality would say that we are to be honest with people at all costs. And so not is he only a liar, he's a hypocrite who himself taught a lie and lived a colossal lie. Lived a colossal lie. More than that, more than that, he was a demon. He was a demon because he told people that it was only through belief in him that you could have eternal life. That eternal destiny was subject to their belief and that, and if he couldn't back up his claims to be God, then he is speaking an unspeakable evil into people's lives. And then lastly, what a fool he would be to lie to the point that he was killed. Lied all the way to being crucified. Good job, fool. You got yourself killed by lying. But yet, in his trial, Jesus remained silent, did not defend himself, confident in his identity of who he is, Son of God. Now, many will say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher, a good moral person. Uh, so let's just be realistic in that. How could he be a good moral teacher and knowingly mislead people on the most important point of his teaching, his identity? How could he be a good moral teacher if that's all that he did, pointed people wrongly? You you would have to conclude logically that he's evil if he did that, and he's, and he's deliberately lying to people. But that view of Jesus is not the Jesus that we know. It doesn't coincide with what we know about him and his gospel and the results of his gospel in people's lives. Wherever Jesus has been preached, life has been transformed. Hearts have been changed. People have come out of bondage. Alcoholics have been delivered. Individuals who were full with hate become channels of love. The unjust become the just. The gospel changes the world. It's changed nations. It's changed lives. It brings hope to the world. You can't argue that. Even a secular historian named William Lackey, one of Great Britain's most noted historians, dedicated opponent to Christianity, he wrote this. He said, It is reserved for Christianity to present to the world an ideal character which through all the changes of 18 centuries have inspired the hearts of men with impassioned love, has shown itself capable of acting on all ages, nations, temperaments, and conditions, has not only the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice. The simple record of these three short years, the life of Jesus, the active life of Jesus, has done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all of the philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. The coming of Christ changed everything. And this is coming from an opponent of Christianity who looks in the world and said it, it did something. Mankind is simply better because of the gospel. Where the, no, where the message of Christ has been, it has changed the world. And then just suppose this. Suppose the, the idiocracy of, of, of all this. If, if Jesus wanted to go and find for him a people that would follow him, that he would find some celebrity, why would he go to a Jewish nation? Why would he go to a strictly monotheistic religion that believed in one God? Why would the Nazarene carpenter go to a country so small in land, in, 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 in location, in population, 
that is so zealous about the word of God and so zealous about the things of God, why wouldn't he just go to Egypt or Greece where, where there were many gods and they were okay with many different manifestations of God? Why would he choose like the hardest place to do this, to deceive people? Now listen, somebody who lived the life that Jesus did, who taught the things that Jesus taught, who died the way that Jesus died, could never be considered a liar. And so then was he a lunatic? Were his claims false and he just self-deceived himself to believe that I'm actually God? Did he just fool himself that he actually thought he was God? He was this crazy guy that was just going around making these claims. Think about how difficult that would be in Israel, in that fiercely monotheistic religion to confess to people, to tell to people that your eternal destiny depended on your belief in him. Like, that's the stupidest thing ever if you're a lunatic. Like, you're the dumbest lunatic in the world to go into that culture and try to deceive people. And so was Christ that person? Was he that person, somebody who, who believed he was God? Like, in the same way that maybe somebody today would, might say that they're Abraham Lincoln. If somebody came to you and said they're Abraham Lincoln, like, you're running from that. You're intrigued for a moment, right? What's he going to say here? But you ain't got no time for that. That person is not somebody that you're going to hang around. That person probably is going to be in jail to protect themselves from themselves and protect others from him. Yet in Jesus, we don't see any of the abnormalities, any of the inconsistencies, any of the imbalances that usually go along with being deranged. His poise and his composure would be certainly amazing if he were insane. And in light of other things that we know about Jesus, it's hard to imagine that he's mentally disturbed. But I mean, he spoke some of the most profound words that human history has ever heard. His teachings are flawless. His instructions have liberated tons from bondage and captivity. A person with the type of love and compassion that we see in Jesus, is he mentally ill? Somebody who endured great suffering and torture and hardship with such grace and humility could never be confused for a lunatic. And listen, nobody in his time did so. Nobody confused him for a lunatic. And so was he then just a legend? Is he just this great moral teacher like Confucius or Buddha from the past that we just elevated into this role of, of being a great moral leader, that he has great morality, he has great love, he's somebody to note, he's somebody to be like, he's somebody to strive for, but he's not divine. I don't live because of him or for him. Well, C.S. Lewis, who we talked about early, uh, he has a, a great thought on this. We'll put it up on the screen. He, he said this about trying to, to make Christ into a great moral teacher alone. He says, I'm, here, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about him, about Jesus. And this is what they would say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. And Lewis goes on to say, 
He says you can't shut him up for a fool. You can't spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can, you can, fall, you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come up with a patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend that. Jesus himself is not, in his message, is not conveying morality and teaching. He has one aim, and it's to rescue the lost, to seek and save the lost. Luke 19, 10, he came to seek and to save the lost. The lost meaning humanity who were broken in their sin, fractured in their relationship with God. He came to seek and save his, the lost. And his mission was so evident, and his divine being was so known by those who around him that they were willing to be killed for him. History denotes that every disciple was martyred, tortured, and killed for the name of Jesus, except for one man, John, the writer of this letter. He was sent to exile. Every one of his closest followers executed. You're telling me that many people go to die for a lie. They go to die for a lie, to be beaten, tortured, and killed for a lying lunatic. We have no confessions in any sort of historical document that anyone said that we're making this up. And the reason that we don't have those things is because Jesus was actually who he said he was. He was Lord. We cannot, based on this evidence, this is just a small amount of evidence comparatively, conclude that he was a liar, he was a lunatic, he never named to be a legend, the only alternative is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God as he claimed. And so what do you say? What do you say? John starts out both his gospel and his letter compelling to people the importance of right belief in Jesus Christ. That on a foundational level, you have to get this right because if you don't, you will live in a place that will take you places you don't want to go. He's so concerned about making sure that you understand that he came, he was here, he was in flesh, I touched him, I saw him, he is life manifest. And so what do you say? Looking at those things, liar, lunatic, lord, or legend, what, what do you see Jesus as? And so we're going to send you home with a question. You can write this down. You have a question in your bulletin. You have a question here. Just something to consider this week because it's the most important question you'll ever consider in your life. If Jesus were truly the Son of God, fully human and fully divine, how does that change my life? And what does it require of me? Question for us to consider this week. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as a God that isn't mystical, that isn't... Uh, outside of our knowledge to know in some degree, but Lord, that you have come so near to us, that you have come in flesh, that we might understand who you are and what you did. And so God, will you help us to contemplate in our hearts the most profound question that we could ever answer in our life? What do we do with you? What do we do with you, Jesus? And what do we believe you to be? And help Help us, Lord, through the study of your word and your Holy Spirit, understand what that implies for our lives. And so, God, use your word to press on our hearts. Use your spirit to move us to where you want to. Break us where you need us to be broken. 
We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your awesome and holy name. Amen.